uh, have a Bible with you, uh, you'll want to turn to Luke chapter 7. Uh, So we've been following Jesus and his ministry through the book of Luke. Um, And he began his ministry by uh, standing up in the synagogue and reading from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, This is recorded in in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he begins his ministry of mercy with this pronouncement. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in in your hearing. And in the ensuing chapters, he demonstrates his power and authority over the demons He demonstrates his power and authority over uncleanness and disease by healing the leper. He demonstrates his power over time and place by healing a man who was in a different place from him. And he demonstrates his power and authority over death itself by raising to life that widow's son. So he had come as Israel's Messiah, as her deliverer, but not in the way that people quite expected him to come. They expected him to come and to throw off the yoke of Roman rule, to free them from their political oppression. But he had a larger and greater purpose in mind. We're going to see that today in our text. So we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. We're going to pause right there. This Pharisee, right, um, Jesus has come to his town and he extends this invitation to Jesus and presumably his disciples for a little bit of a dinner party. And this would have been a a, a different sort of arrangement than than we may imagine uh, because it was a little bit more of of a community event. People could kind of come and go and and hear the discussion because this was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, somebody who knew God's word well. And Jesus, this visiting rabbi, this discussion was going to be fruitful for other people to hear. Um, And so this Pharisee invites him over and they begin to have dinner. Now, it's possible that this Pharisee genuinely wanted to talk to Jesus. He really just wanted to make this connection. I don't think that's the case, and we'll talk about that a little bit further on. But more than likely, he invited Jesus to his home out of some sort of social obligation or a desire to, to, uh, to gain some social capital, right? To, to make himself look good by being the one who is entertaining this, this visiting celebrity, really, right? Because if, if you have a celebrity who's in town and they come to visit your home, you get a little boost of self-importance when that happens, Right? 
But in the midst of this perfectly normal dinner, this woman comes in. And Luke puts it very um, gingerly here. She was a woman of the city who was a sinner. And it doesn't say it explicitly, but throughout most of the history of the church, people have read this as she was a prostitute. She was unfaithful. And regardless of the nature of her sin, she was defined by her sin, right? She had ceased to be so-and-so's daughter or so-and-so's mother. She had ceased to be whatever other profession she might have had, and she became defined by her sin. She was a sinner. You need to know one thing. That was the important piece. She was a sinner. And this woman has come and she is crying. This is not, you know, the the dainty sort of crying. This is ugly crying. She is weeping profusely. She is crying enough that her tears provided enough water to wash Jesus' feet. And having washed them with her tears, she dried his feet with her hair. And in doing so, she demonstrates this this great humility, right? And, And we can understand part of this. Because people's feet, just kind of in general, they're not the cleanest part of the body. And especially in those days, people are walking around either barefoot or in sandals, walking wherever they go, walking where the donkeys walked, walking where the horses had walked. Your feet are going to be nasty. And so even for us today, we look at that and we say, she, she took her hair and dried his feet? Ew! We, we get a little bit of that. But socially, even in that day, it would have been unthinkable for a woman to uncover her hair in the presence of people who weren't her family. And so she is, she is showing an utter disregard for her, own, for her own body, right? She is showing an utter, utter disregard for social customs in this, in this exchange. And then she proceeds to anoint Jesus' feet with... Um, what is this? With ointment, right? This value isn't given here, but there's a similar sort of ointment that's referenced in uh, John chapter 12 that has a value of 300 denarii, 300 days' wages. So more than a year's worth of work could have been wrapped up in this, in this transaction. So between the public humiliation that it would have been for this great sinner to show up at this Pharisee's house, to be ugly crying in the middle of all of it, to unwrap her hair, to use her hair to dry somebody's feet, and to use this expensive perfume, this would have been an extremely costly undertaking, monetarily, socially, emotionally. This was not an easy or small thing for her to do. And this Pharisee sees what's going on. He sees this woman, and he says to himself, He thinks, man, if this guy was a prophet, then he he has to know what sort of woman this is who's touching him. If this guy's a prophet, he wouldn't allow this woman to do what she is doing. He would know that she was a sinner. He would know that she was unclean. And therefore, the thought process would arrive at this logical conclusion, Jesus can't be a prophet. And so this guy is thinking in his head, 
This is all just a waste of my time. I can't believe what is going on in my house. But this was not something that he said out loud, but rather something that he thought. And this is just a little aside. How would Luke come to know after the fact what it was that this man was thinking at the time? Well, Luke went around collecting reports, eyewitness reports of what went on. He's got the guy's name. He knows the city. It's reasonable to think that at some point later on down the road, Luke went and interviewed Simon, the Pharisee, to find out what happened there. So the aside is, is passed there. We'll pick back up in verse 40. Uh, so remember, Simon had just thought, the Pharisee had just thought, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So Jesus knows what is going on inside of Simon's head. He knows what's going on inside of this guy's mind. Jesus knows his thoughts. Because this is what David says of God in Psalm 139. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, he goes on to say, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So remember that David is saying in Psalm 139, that God knows our thoughts. He knows our actions before we take them. And Jesus, knowing this man's thoughts, tells him this short parable, where there is forgiveness for these two people who have a debt that they cannot pay. Now, some more, some less. One of them owed quite a bit. A, a, denarii, a denarius was a day's wage, so 500 denarii, um, would have been a couple of years' worth of work for a common laborer. But both of the debtors were forgiven. And Jesus asks him, what do you think, Simon? Which of the two people are going to love this moneylender more after he has forgiven their debts? And Simon's response is a, is a little bit odd. Right? He says, the one, I suppose... If you're going to force me into giving an answer, Jesus, then I suppose it would be the one who had more, of their, more debt forgiven. He's a little reluctant because I think that he knows that he's being called out. He realizes that, that his thoughts had betrayed him in some way. And he rightly observes, Jesus says, that the one who, loved, who would love the moneylender more is the one who had been forgiven more. They were both bankrupt, right? They were both completely unable to pay. But both of their debts were forgiven. They were canceled. They were written off. They owed the money, and then it was forgiven, and so they no longer owed that money. But the one who had the greater debt forgiven, that person, Simon says, is going to love more. Picking up in uh, verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? 
I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So the Pharisee, Simon, had, had violated some pretty serious social norms, right? He was not being a kind and considerate host for Jesus. He couldn't be bothered to show basic courtesy to this teacher. Ultimately, he was being very unloving towards Jesus. But in contrast, this woman had basically humiliated herself in public out of her great love for Jesus. She had sacrificed an incredibly valuable perfume because she had known that Jesus had forgiven her sins. See, at least in his own eyes, the Pharisee was not a sinner. He did not consider himself to be a sinner because his life was defined by his rigid, specific adherence to the law. But this woman, she was a sinner. Her life was defined by her sin. Her sin told her and those around her precisely where she belonged. Despised, rejected, outcast from polite society. Her sin made her untouchable and unlovable. Her sin had cut off her relationships from those around her. Her sin had cut her off from her relationship with God. But then Jesus shows up. And when you put the gospel accounts together in in the order where they make the most sense, what comes right before this is recorded in Matthew 11, where Jesus is giving the sermon and he ends it with this call where he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he has come here, friends, proclaiming freedom, for the oppressed, promising a gentle yoke, a compassionate and forgiving heart. And this woman has taken him up at his word. This woman believes what Jesus has said. She believes that he is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he can do. She has faith in him. And that faith responds in love. A love in proportion to how deeply she understood her sin was. She came to Jesus in humility. Not thinking that she was worth it. Not thinking that she deserved it. But she came to Jesus in faith. Not looking for proof. Not looking for what he can give her. And this is the response, friends, of somebody who has been forgiven much. And who feels it deep down in the center of who they are not only feeling her need of a savior, but feeling the grace and the mercy that Jesus had given her. And you take that attitude 
and you contrast it with the attitude of the Pharisee. He didn't think that Jesus was worthy of even basic social respect, right? Somebody comes in off the street in those days, you give them water to wash their feet. You greet them with a kiss, a hug, a handshake, whatever the social norm was, right? You you extend to them basic courtesy, but he didn't even do that. He was there entertaining Jesus out of some sort of obligation or, or to be able to get something out of it. But his lack of love, his lack of common compassion reveals a lack of understanding about who Jesus is and a lack of self-awareness as to who Simon is too. It shows a complete lack of understanding of his need for forgiveness and a complete lack of understanding of Jesus' ability to forgive. So we see ultimately that his lack of love towards Jesus, reveals that his sins were not forgiven. Because he still was harboring the delusion that he was good enough, that he was well-behaved enough, that he followed the law closely enough, that he didn't need some Messiah to show up and save him. Saving was for people who were lost, and he didn't think he was lost. He thought he was right where he needed to be. So this attitude meant that he was approaching Jesus as an equal, or even as Jesus is better, looking down on him. And that attitude revealed that he didn't understand the perfection that was demanded by a holy God. Not just perfection in action, but perfection in thought and in belief as well. His attitude that revealed that he didn't think he needed a savior, that he was doing just fine on his own. But the reality is that he was just in much in just as much need of a savior as she was. Because you remember what Jesus said in in Matthew 5, after listing out all of the, you have heard it said, he said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That is a standard, friends, that every single one of us has fallen short of. Because there are none of us who are righteous. No, not one. We are slaves to our sinful thoughts and beliefs. We are slaves to our sinful emotions. We are slaves to our sinful behaviors. We are all a people who are just as desperately in need of a savior as this woman was. But some of us, like Simon, are too proud, are too self-righteous, too self-assured to accept that. But Jesus is that savior that she needs. And so he turns to the woman and tells her, your sins are forgiven. All of the wrong actions, all of the wrong thoughts, all of the wrong beliefs that have defined your life so far. He says all of your failures, all of the ways that you have hurt and abused your fellow man, all of the ways that you have rebelled against and hated your creator, all of these things have been forgiven. And this causes quite the commotion. It says in verse 49, Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So who is it that can forgive sins? Who can forgive sins? When we go back to the book of Exodus, You remember the the story with Moses coming down 
from the mountain and the Israelites are already violating like seven of the Ten Commandments that he is bringing down to give to them. And the tablets get broken because he loses his cool a little bit. Just after that, God gives him a new set of tablets. And we see this exchange in Exodus 34, starting in verse 6, where it says, The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. This is the important part here. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So in this exchange, God is proclaiming to Moses that he is the one who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And Moses says, yes, you are the one who forgives. Please forgive us because we're stubborn and rebellious. God is the one who has the ability to forgive sins. This is what Daniel wrote in his prayer to God in Daniel 9. He says, to us, O Lord, to your people, to Israel, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. But to the Lord, but to the Lord, belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him. Sin, remember, friends, is first and foremost an offense against a holy God. It is an act of cosmic treason when we, the created beings, engage in rebellion against our creator. Because we can forgive one another for the wrongs that are done against us, but each wrong that we commit against another person is first a wrong against God. So if I lie to you, that harms you, or it has the potential to at least. And so if I lie to you, then I need to ask forgiveness from you for that. But each lie that comes out of my lips is first an affront and an assault on the God who is truth and in whom there is no lie. When I kill somebody, that harms the person irreparably. It harms the people around them. <clears throat> But before it is an assault on them, it is an assault on God's sovereignty. When I am saying that, that I know more than God, when I am saying that I have more power than he does, and so I have the power and authority to take that life, each failure, each conscious choice, each time that we miss the mark, each time that we fall short, each time that we look at what is right and choose to do what is wrong instead, we sin. Yes, against others, but first, against God. So if our sin is first and foremost sin against God, that tells us a couple of things that we need to know here. First is that that sin, our rebellion, is the source of death. Because death is a consequence of sin. 
because we have cut ourselves off by our sin from the source of life. In our sin, we have declared war on the one who keeps us alive. And we deserve to be struck down in an instant. But by his grace, he doesn't do that. But ultimately, our collective sins as mankind, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, our sins are the source of all death and all suffering in this world. That is the first thing to know. But the second thing is that only God can forgive sins. I can't forgive sins on somebody else's behalf. Just like I can't forgive debts on somebody else's behalf. Right? Dwayne, if you owe Kim $20, can I just go to Kim and say, Kim, your debt's forgiven. I don't have the authority to do that. That's not my debt to forgive. And so it is only God who can forgive sins against God. And the people understood that. And that's why they're so astonished by this. Who is this? Who does he think he is to forgive sins? Because only God can forgive sins. Jesus said, woman, your sins are forgiven. He is saying to those people who are paying attention that he is God. He knows, and they know, and he knows that they know, that only God can forgive sins. And so he is claiming that authority for himself. He is claiming to have authority that only God can have. And he is exercising that authority and that power, friends, to bring this lost daughter of Israel home. This is why he came. Right? It says in Luke 19.10 that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This was his purpose. This was the reason that he was there. To bring home the lost, to heal the broken, to comfort the hurting, to call the sinner to repentance and faith. And what does it say here that saved her? How were her sins forgiven? Were her sins forgiven because she washed his feet? Were her sins forgiven because she used this ointment on him? Were her sins forgiven because of all of the prayers that she prayed? Were her sins forgiven because of her giving, because of her volunteering? But no, what does it say in verse 50? Your faith has saved you. Jesus told her that she was a sinner, but she knew that already. But Jesus came and said, I am your savior, and she believed that. She had faith in him as her savior, and that faith, that belief, that trust, saved her. Not what she did, not who she was, not what she accomplished, not what she brought to the table, but it was her faith that saved her. This woman came, bowed down under the weight and burden of her sin, of her choices and her failures. This woman came carrying the weight of shame from a lifetime of choices. And she was set free from that burden of her sin and her shame by the grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. She believed, and she who was dead in her sins was made alive by grace through faith. And to the Pharisee, this would have been absolutely outrageous. This would have been blasphemy that a known sinner could be made right with God. 
Because this woman was being given something for free that he thought that he had worked his entire life for. But we see that this was not unusual with Jesus. We read in the first three verses of chapter 8 that soon afterward he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve, that is his twelve disciples, were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and, and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So the, the followers of Jesus then were drawn in from all walks of life. Men and women. The respectable and the disreputable. The powerful and the weak. Roman enablers and zealots, rich and poor, outcasts and social elites. Because his call to repentance and faith was not limited to one group or one class or one type of people. But he calls all people everywhere to repent and place their faith in him. He calls to the blind, come and receive sight. He calls to the lost, come and be found. He calls to the hurting and to the sinful. He calls to the dead and their sins come and turn away and find life in me. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden with your sin. And believe in me. You will be forgiven. and I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This was the call that this woman answered. She turned from placing her faith in the things of this world to place her faith in Jesus. And when she understood what the deal was, when she understood what was taking place here, and she believed in him, her response was a love that overwhelmed her pride, that overcame her financial sensibilities, that overcame her sense of social propriety, because she was overcome with a love for her Lord that was all-consuming. And this is the way that we see the kingdom of heaven brought to earth in hearts that were once consumed with a love for ourselves and a love for the things of this world being reborn so that they no longer love those things, but so that they love their Savior, so that they love their Lord best of all. And when that happens, every other part of our lives becomes subject to and oriented around the love of our Savior. See, her hair, she didn't care. She didn't care about the dirt or the dishonor as much as she cared about loving her Lord. Her perfume was expensive. That ointment was costly. But she didn't care about the cost. It was about bringing glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And this is the diagnostic tool that we have been given as believers, right? We have heard the good news that Jesus has come to forgive, to restore, to heal, and to renew all things. How are we going to respond to that? We have the two responses in this story from today, right? We have the response of the Pharisee, and we have the response of the woman. The Pharisee responded in an absence of love. It was a perfunctory 
response. It was a socially obligatory relationship with Jesus. It's just kind of this thing that I know I need to do, so I'm going to go and do it. But I'm going to do kind of the bare minimum. I'm going to do just what I need to. That's a service, yes, but it's born out of obligation. And in contrast to that, we see the way that this woman served Jesus, a service that was born out of love, because she understood that Jesus had given her something that she could never have deserved or earned or secured for herself, not because of who she was, but because of who he was. It wasn't a repayment for a life well lived, but rather it was a gift to one whose life was far from good. And so she responded in love, in a great love, in an overflowing love, in an abounding love. So friends, God has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has said that your sins can be forgiven if you will place your faith in him, if you will believe in him. So how will you respond? Will you say, hmm, that's weird. It's bizarre. Nah, who cares? Will you respond like the Pharisee did? Okay, well, I guess I'm obligated to entertain him in some fashion. I'll go to church. I have to. Maybe I'll read my kids' Bible stories. I'll help out when there's a need. But friends, if that's the way that we respond to Jesus, if that's the way that we respond to his message, then we have not understood the depths of our sin. And we have not understood the holiness and perfection of our Lord. But rather... Look at the way that the woman responded. You mean that I can be forgiven? Me? With everything that I've done and everything that I've failed to do? I can be made whole? Are you saying, Jesus, that I can be loved not just for what I can give somebody, but for who I am in you? You mean that I don't have to carry the burden of my shame and my guilt anymore? Friends, this is a truth. This is a promise that shouldn't just make us go, cool. But this is a truth that should completely change the course of every single part of our lives in a drastic and public way. Because for this woman, what Jesus brought was not just an add-on to her life, not just something extra to do, but it was an entirely different way of living. An entirely different way of seeing the world. An entirely different way of interacting with it. So you have been invited in. How will you respond? Maybe you were invited in a long time ago. And your response has been, has been that of the Pharisee. An obligatory, perfunctory surface-level honoring of Jesus, but remaining dead in your pride and arrogance. But no matter how long, no matter how well-entrenched your sin is, you can be forgiven. It says in 1 Timothy 1 that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I 
of whom I, every one of us, must be able to say that I am the foremost of sinners. We must confess our sin and turn to Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved, as the only way to be healed and made whole. Let's pray together today. Father, I do confess of my tendency to to be this Pharisee, God. Of my tendency to seek to do the, the bare minimum that is necessary. It is my tendency, God, to honor you with my lips, but to have my heart be far from you. But God, I pray, I pray that more and more every day, my heart would be like the heart of this woman, that my heart would respond in in exuberant love, overflowing love, a love that cannot be contained. Because God, I believe that I am a sinner and that I am a great sinner. But Father, you have provided a greater Savior in Jesus Christ. And I trust him. I trust him for the forgiveness of my sins. I trust him for my own sanctification. And I trust that one day he is coming back to do what he said he would do. To set right all of the hurt and the pain and the suffering. To cast sin and death into that lake of fire. And Father, I look forward to that day. And I pray for that day. That it would come quickly. But I trust you, Father, in the work that you are doing in this world. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, who alone has the ability to forgive sins, Jesus Christ. Amen.